Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. This is Judy. This is Sana. Hey guys, I'm a little sick. I'm sorry. I know. I feel like I have to talk more now because Judy usually brings all the excitement. I mean, I still have the energy. I just don't sound like it. I just I sound like a like I have a little bit of a cold. I think you sound great. Thanks. I love I love cold voices. I feel like we sound sexier when we, like when we're like, losing our voice a little bit. Uh, <laughs> like our sultry voices. Like yeah. it's like 10 p.m. on Friday night, and you're listening to the radio, and you're listening. To like you want that romance like music the only reason that comes to my head was that we were driving in LA like and that station in LA still existed and we were listening to that music and I was like this still exists and also like I like this I like it too you did make me a little sleepy though but that's that's fine so this particular 80th anniversary special is all about the 1970s and we talked to two different people about their interaction with comics in the 70s what Marvel was like and the first interview we had was with Trina Robbins you guys have heard her before on the podcast she's a writer historian comic book creator and then uh, the second interview was with Karen Green who is curator for comics and cartoons at Columbia University's rare book and manuscript library Um, and she actually started the collection like in my head there's like a game show sound music playing or something like that because that's what I think of the 1970s I think of polyester yeah I think of um, disco. Yeah. And I think of independent comics. No, we just did an episode with Trina where she talked about the 1950s and girl comics. And, you know, Trina came into comics through that and then actually moved to San Francisco in 1970 and basically helped start one of the um, really well-known like indie underground comic book that would come out uh, monthly and it would feature all these uh, submitted art from all different diverse walks of life. Like, I mean, when I think that San Francisco in the 1970s, that's exactly what I think. So it's yeah. great. And she's a great story just about help to cultivate a space for creators that didn't traditionally have it in the mainstream comic world. And then talked a bit more just about Marvel in the 70s and what kind of time it was at the company as well. So a great conversation as always. She is just a treasure chest of knowledge. I love talking to Trina. I mean, it was so great to have her in the office and actually be able to meet her in person because she's she is like one of the first historians that really focused in on females in the comic industry. And it's something that we need and you don't realize you needed it until possibly it's gone. So it's great that Trina is doing it now so that we can remember for the next generations. We're super excited just to hear the stories from the 1970s uh, via Trina. So go check out the interview. Welcome back, Trina. Hi, I'm here. You are here. <laughs> we're here again. We're continuing our 80th anniversary episode this week. Uh, we're going to talk about the 1970s. But before we get into that. Yes. So actually, speaking of the 1970s, I know we talked a bit about Marvel in the 70s, but I think it's incredibly important to talk about this incredible movement that was happening in in San Francisco at the time. And that's really where Trina moved to San Francisco in 1970. And not only is she the best person to talk about it from a historical standpoint, she really helped start a great underground comics movement that brought in a lot of female creators. So Trina, we'd just love to hear a little bit about your particular career and then of course talk about some of the women that you worked with and the content you worked on. But like what you kicked off when you started out in San Francisco with some of the indie comics and some of the anthologies that you worked on, where that came from? Well, San Francisco in in the late 60s and the early 70s was really kind of the mecca of underground comics. There were two publishers who published underground comics, and that wasn't happening anywhere else. It wasn't happening in New York. In New York, they were doing underground comics, but they were in underground newspapers, so this was something new. I know it, it sounds silly now, but it was like it was like a real revolution. Wow, you can do underground comics in comic books. They don't have to be in underground newspapers. So there were two publishers in San Francisco, and what was happening was around 1969, 1970, all of the underground cartoonists from New York went across the country to San Francisco to be part of the underground comics movement. Well, what was the underground comics movement? How would you define it? Well, you know, it's an art movement. When I think of it now, it's an art movement. We didn't think of it as that at the time. It was people who wanted to do comics, but we didn't want to do with the short-haired heroes, you know, in their costumes, punching each other out. 
We wanted to do stories that related to us, to our lives, to the counterculture, really. And that's what underground comics were. And, of course, there was no comics code. Mm. You know, there was a comics code in, in above ground, in mainstream comics. So you were limited to what you could talk about. Yeah, so the the Comics Code was created in 1953, and it, the intention was to basically put rules and regulations of what, mm-hmm. what was proper in comics. Yes. Because they really felt like it was reflected on the youth. Like, kids took messages and then somehow would start doing things accordingly. Exactly. So, which I thought was pretty fascinating, because now we're so afraid of, like, putting even just defining what comic is for what particular age because we don't want to do any type of of, of censorship. But what would you say? Would you say then that, like, the underground comics movement was a reaction to that? It wasn't just a reaction to that. It was a reaction to just mainstream comics, which were very straight. They were mainstream. And hippies and college students, the counterculture, we didn't relate to that kind of life. You know, we had a completely different life. And so we wanted to do comics that related to us. Unfortunately, it was double-edged sword because not having a comics code meant you could draw whatever is in your head. And it turned out that a lot of what was in these guys' heads was stuff that, that you'd be horrified to look at now, but that they thought was funny. But, you know, here am I going, oh, no, that's sexist. Oh, no, that's insulting to women. And they're going, you have no sense of humor. Oh, wow. So is that where your, like, It Ain't Me Babe or women's comics, like, is that where it came from? Well, I came to San Francisco and discovered that it was a boys club. Underground comics were a boys club. And they didn't want me in. They didn't invite me in. They didn't even invite me to their parties. They ignored me, basically. But I wanted to draw comics. So someone showed me a copy of the first women's liberation newspaper in America. And it was coming out of Berkeley, and it was called It Ain't Me, Babe. And I phoned them, and I said, I'd like to join you. And there was a bee in it in Golden Gate Park, and we all met at the bee in. I showed them my stuff, and they said, we love you. Come work with us. <laughs> and soon I was doing covers for them and, and comics on the back cover and illustrations inside. And at a certain point, working with these women made me strong enough because I had them to back me up to say, I can do a whole comic book. We can do a comic book. So... I found other artists, and we produced the very first, I produced it, the very, very first all-woman comic book ever. That's amazing. And that was called It Ain't Me Babe Comics. That was 1970. And that's absolutely fantastic because that's, I mean, 1970, you gather a bunch of women together, you make this anthology, and then from there, that was really the beginning of of women's comics, right? Two two years later, 10 of us met in one of the women's uh, houses, and and we formed women's comics, which lasted 20 years. What was the thesis of women's comics? thesis of women's comics was that women needed somewhere to express themselves, and here was a comic, and we always asked for contributions, and we got them. We got contributions immediately so that it was a place for women to finally be published because the guys weren't publishing us. That's great. What kind of content were you writing within those pages? What kinds of stories? And who were you writing it for? We were writing it for ourselves. Okay. Just like the women who drew comics in the past, really they drew for themselves. That's why so many of them put themselves into their comics. There were no rules. You write what you want to write. But what that turned out, of course, is that a lot of times we talked about subjects that the guys wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. You know, menstruation, abortion, you know, things like that, lesbians. So what I learned, and I actually did not know this, that that you guys had the first official comic story featuring a lesbian character. That was my comic. That was that was in the first issue of Women's Comics, Sandy Comes Out. It was the story of my roommate. I decided to do really? it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about how how'd you decide to do that. I just thought it was a great story. You know, she told me about her adventures. I thought, I'll do this as a comic. And I did it with Sandy's approval. You know, I showed her all the pages. She approved of everything I put in. She even helped me with some of the dialogue. And when it was finished, I gave her the originals. Now, that's a story. Sandy eventually moved to Seattle 
and joined the women's community there, meaning had nothing to do with men at all, just women. And I lost touch with her. She also changed her last name. And so I didn't know what her new last name was. Kept looking for her and looking for her, never finding her. Well, she had a son, Avery. And one day, this very nice-looking guy in his 20s comes up to me on my block, in my neighborhood, in front of my house, and says, are you Trina Robbins? And I went, yeah. Well, it's her grown-up son, Avery. No way. Yeah, and he, and he lives on my block, just a few houses what? down. Yeah. And the first thing that happened was very sad because I found out Sandy had died. Oh, yeah. And he did not know where the pages were, my originals. So many years later, I reconnected with him, and he was a very nice guy, by the way. And he found out that Sandy had given the pages to her girlfriend, but the girlfriend had died, and her son inherited the pages. And her son found Avery and said, you should have these pages because it's about your mother. And he gave the pages to Avery. And I said, Avery, you should keep them because they're about your mother. But what I want, please, is for you to make a very, very high-resolution scan of the pages so that I can print from that. And that's what he's doing. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a great thing. This year is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. That would also be like a great read you know, for the LGBTQ out there. So that's great to hear. Would you say that all of these anthologies, this comics collaborations with these awesome female creators that you went into. How were you influenced by the women's liberation movement? Of course we were influenced by the women's. We were feminists. Of course we were. Would you say, though, that you guys started it because of the liberation movement? Or would you say that everyone was kind of feeling the same thing at the same time? Well, that was the first women's liberation newspaper. And it ain't me, babe. Underneath it said women's liberation. And the same publisher, it ain't me, babe, sold very well, was reprinted three times. And the same publisher wanted to do another women's liberation book. So, as I say, two years later in 72, 10 of us met, and that's what started it. And, of course, we were feminists. The spelling of women's comics, where did we that spelled come it, from? We spelled it in a comic-y way. Okay. It's funny, too, because at first we didn't know what to call it. And we were saying the name. We were saying, what shall we call this women's comic? (laughs) We realized it was women's comics. W-I-M-M-I-N-S. Yes. Comics with an X. Comics with an X. I love that. I mean, what was it like being, because obviously the 70s go on and, and the feminist movement kind of fades off for a bit. But you guys kept on making comics. Oh, of course. For 20 years. What would you say was the biggest challenge of that experience? I mean, you put together what that when it lasted over 20 years, women's yes. comics. What was that challenge? I mean, it's an incredible accomplishment. But what was the difficulty, you think? Well, the difficulty certainly was that we didn't get paid a lot. <laughs> um, but really, the difficulty was a distribution. Mm. All these lovely comics died from lack of distribution because at this point... You could only get comics in comic book stores. Now, when I was a kid, you could get them at newsstands, get them at at, uh, drugstores. In my case, I would go to the local candy store, and he had a spinner rack that said, Hey, kids, comics. Mm -hmm. You could stand there and pick what comic you wanted to buy until the grouchy owner of the store would say, Make your selection. This isn't a library. (laughs) Um, But... When the comics were only carried in comic book stores, at this point, they were getting totally superhero-oriented. And that meant boys, little boys. And they didn't want to carry anything that women read or that girls might read. And that went on. That went on for, you know, until the early 21st century. You know, you know what broke the mold? Sailor Moon. Oh, really? Yeah, because they couldn't, when Sailor Moon came to America and everyone loved it and it was such a hit, and then followed by all these manga, and they couldn't say girls don't read comics anymore because girls were reading comics. It definitely brought girls into the comics. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of the people that we talk to that are younger think to anime and manga as sort of an introduction to comics. Exactly. 
guys never wrote about that stuff. Mm. How would you get these comics? I mean, you talk about distribution. Was there like, were you part of like a, you wrote in and you paid a yearly sum and they would come to your door? Like, where would you get them? How would you get them? In stores. In stores. Well, in the beginning, you see, in the beginning, in the early 70s, there were head shops. Ever hear of head shops? No. They sold counterculture stuff and just things that were psychedelic, tie-dyes, and they carried underground comics. That's where you got underground comics was in head shops. Now, in the case of women's comics, also in the 70s, there were women's bookstores, which really just do not exist anymore. But there were women's bookstores well through the 90s, and you, you, the women's bookstores carried women's comics. We talked in an earlier episode about Millie the Model, all these fantastic characters um, from the 40s and 50s, but you actually came back and you did a series that is sort of like a spinoff of Millie featuring her niece, Misty. <laughs> that was my attempt yeah. to bring back the girls' comics of the 40s and 50s and even, even the early 60s. And I was lucky because Jim Shooter had, when he first came to work for Marvel, he wrote Millie. So he understood what I was doing, and that was great. So he gave me six issues. And the trouble is, what killed it is what I talked about before, distribution. The comic book stores did not want to carry comics that appeal to girls. They did not want girls in their comic book stores. So I would get... God, I would get so much fan mail, manila envelopes stuffed with mail. But they would all say, I really love your comic, but I can't find it anywhere. Oh, really? Yeah. And what was the premise? Why don't you tell us about the story? Well, Misty is a teenage girl based on all those teenage girl comics. She's a typical teenage girl. She wants to be an actress, and she wins a talent contest and gets a, a role in a uh, soap, in a TV soap. Of course, there's a guy she likes. He's an actor. He's a star. She's just a small part. But her adventures aren't just on TV. They're the life of a typical teenage girl. And she has friends, you know, and they have adventures. They all, they all have adventures together. And it's light romance. So not a typical, uh, like, superhero action. Not at like all. That. Yeah, yeah. Did you get a lot of uh, pushback and hate mail or anything for the work you were doing? I only got hate mail once, but I sure did get a pushback. I mean, it would get back to me what some of these guys said. I mean, at one point, some guy said, here comes Trina Robbins, hide the knives. Oh, my God. Was it they were just unhappy with the fact that you had a space? They were very or... threatened by feminism, extremely threatened. They were so, oh, my God, they were so threatened by feminism. What? kinds of stories were you interested in writing about or are you interested in writing about everything <laughs> really? <laughs> no really all. really i've i've written a lot of graphic novels for kids well for younger readers that i'm quite proud of graphic novels comics as long as it's females i did a six-part series for for younger readers called the chicagoland detective agency that was in the earlier 21st century. And um, it wasn't just a girl. It was a girl and a boy and a talking dog. But, I mean, there has to be a strong female character. Because how can I relate to anything but a strong female character? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so the important thing to know about Trina is, like, she's had a really important impact on comics in general across the board, particularly with female creators. But you also drew the first Wonder Woman, not the first Wonder Woman comic, but were the first woman to draw a Wonder Woman comic. That's uh, right, Yes, right? the first woman to draw a Wonder Woman yeah. comic book. Yes, comic because book. Because Ramona Fraden drew Wonder Woman for Super Friends in 1970. Uh, how did that come about? Well, they asked me. They phoned me and asked me, and that was really nice. And I said yes. It was just one issue? No, it was, was a four-issue miniseries. What year was this? 1986, I think. And you also did the Vampirella... Design as well. I designed Vampirella's yeah. costume in 1969, yes. Wow. And then you were inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame. In 2013. Amazing. That was nice. Yeah, that is amazing. Well-deserved. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, if you guys want to um, learn more about Trina, uh, including her new book that's coming out um, later this year uh, about Gladys Parker, uh, she'll be at San Diego Comic-Con, so you guys can go and meet her in person, plus get her book signed by her, and maybe get a, a chance to look at the up-and-coming Gladys Parker book. But we're so honored to be able to talk to you about the history of women in comics because it is so important to us. And I feel like more people need to know. It's important to me, too. So we'll shout from the ceiling. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Trina, thank you so much, not only just for your time, but for your contribution to comics and for the fact that you helped bring and celebrate all these incredible female creators, not only just for your work, but specifically for you highlighting um, the important work that has been done that people don't really talk often about. It's very meaningful to us here at the Women of Marvel. Thank you. Thanks again to Trina for joining us. And next up, we have Karen Green, who we had such a lovely conversation with her. She was the best. I love Karen so much. A wealth of knowledge, but also did such incredible work to bring the importance of graphic novels and comics and cartoon into the academic space. I attended Barnard, which is a part of Columbia University, and so... I had just missed this collection that she had started. It started a year after I graduated. But it was just great to learn a little bit more about how much Columbia is investing in graphic novels and also celebrating the history of comics and cartoons, which I think is pretty incredible. And Karen is a really, really big part of it. We had a really great conversation. I, I love Karen so much. Yeah. I can't wait to bring her back and talk more about comics because, you know, she's working with Columbia University to archive all these collections from um, comic creators from not just their physical work, but also their notebooks, their pages, anything. they And they collect them. And it's like this treasure trove, all these interesting um, stories, including Chris Claremont. And she showed us some amazing pages of Chris's handwriting. Yeah, which is which the is most beautiful, beautiful handwriting of all time. Um, hopefully you guys will enjoy that conversation and potentially go check out the collection. And in particularly in New York City, which is the birthplace of the Marvel Universe. So I, I feel like there's a lot of great, beautiful elements and synergy happening when you're talking to Karen. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Judy. It's nice to be here. So, okay, I can say on a very, on a personal note, this is very exciting because Karen is a part of my alma mater family. Ah, yes. Um, so Karen Green is a curator for comics and cartoons in Columbia University's rare book and manuscript library, which is awesome. Thank you. Very I cool. Agree. <laughs> Except you launched it a year after I graduated. <laughs> How dare you? Had I but known, you should have come and seen me. I should have come. I should have. I wish I had known that. Like we had this. This connection. Back I was in the, the day. librarian for ancient and medieval history at the time, so you might not have made that kind of intuitive leap to come to see me and talk comics. True, although some <laughs> people consider comics like ancient, ancient. <laughs> to at least these days, at least, you know, my nephews and nieces. Oh, and, and I've got a cool. whole spiel about uh, the medieval antecedents of comics. Oh, God. oh. Yeah, let's definitely talk about that. <laughs> well, let's actually let's dive in and get a better understanding. I'll have the listeners understand who Karen Green is and, and how you got into the comics world. Because you have a very interesting background. <laughs> so yeah. why don't you share like your love, how you got into this space? Oh, gosh. Well, my parents just wanted us to read. They didn't really care what we read. They were happy. My mom used to say, I don't care if you're reading the back of the cereal box over breakfast. I just, I'm just happy that you're reading. <laughs> so, But I was reading ahead of my grade, but I was just reading everything I could get my hands on. And my brother had Mad Magazine, and of course we had the Daily Newspaper Comics, and we had The New Yorker coming in, so I was seeing those cartoons. And then in sixth grade, I got braces, and my orthodontist had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Archie comics. And I would spend hours after my appointments just sitting in the corner of his examination room <laughs> reading Archie's, really thinking that that's what high school was going to be like, which is appropriate for this podcast because I was in high school from 1972 to 1975. And I guarantee you it was not like not, true. not like Riverdale in the comics, more like Riverdale yeah. in the <laughs> Same amount of creepiness and sadness. Yeah. Yes, correct. And then, I don't know, I just kind of – my life has been very random and kind of whim-driven. 
I discovered the Smithsonian's collection of newspaper comics because I was a member of the Smithsonian and I got a mailing and I'm like, oh, I like newspaper comics. So I sent away for that. And that's how I discovered, you know, Windsor McKay and George Harriman and all these amazing cartoonists. And then I had a subscription to National Lampoon. And that's how I discovered heavy metal. Then I had a subscription to heavy metal all through the 80s. And that's how I discovered European comics. Oh, wow. So what was it about, what's it about words and pictures that got you into it? I like art. My parents were real kind of culture vultures, and they loved taking us to museums, and their love for this was infectious. It wasn't like, we have to go to this museum, and we're going to drag you around because it's an obligation. They just exuded enthusiasm for what we were looking at. So I grew up really excited about art, and comics were just another form of art to me. It never occurred to me that they were a lesser form of art. This was just like another cool visual. And just to get back to the medieval thing, my parents took me to the cloisters when I was 10, and I just had exploded. And, you know, you look at medieval stained glass windows, and they tell a story in panels. You look at the Bayeux Tapestry, it tells Mm. a story in panels. You look at medieval manuscripts, they tell stories in panels. If you look at Annunciation scenes, you always have the Archangel Gabriel approaching Mary, and he's got a little banderol coming out of his mouth that says Ave Maria Plena Grazia, speech balloon. You know, it's Mm. all kind of coming together there, that notion of of words and images together making something greater than the sum of their parts goes back to probably the caves in Lascaux or Trajan's Column. There's just, it's a long, long tradition. Okay, so then how did you, I mean, you had this love and this passion, you know, how did you get from the love and the interest to getting to a point where you wanted to make it a part of your career? So I had this really circuitous career that went through dropping out of college, becoming a bartender, going to massage school, um, working for IBM, and then going back to get my bachelor's degree, and then going to Columbia to work on a PhD, which I didn't finish, in medieval history, and then getting the job at Columbia. Wow. Yeah. And then going to library school also at Rutgers. So for those 12 years of like bachelor's degree, MA, MPhil, MLIS, I read nothing for pleasure. Mm. Nothing for pleasure. I would just be reading, you know, scholarship all day long and then come home and watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer because that was like the li- the <laughs> limit of what I could comprehend. But then I got the job at Columbia as librarian for ancient and medieval history and now I had leisure time and I thought, "Gee, I wonder what's happened in comics in the last 12 years." And I don't know how I even came across the title. It was a graphic novel called Mother Come Home by Paul Hornschmeier. And I read it, and it was just so powerful and so beautiful. And it made me think of the European comics that I'd read back in the 80s in in heavy metal and that it was like telling this kind of quiet, little, beautiful story. And I was like, wow, what else is going on? I started buying like crazy. And then I ran up against the brick wall of my salary because I'm a librarian Mm -hmm. Don't get paid very well. Um, (laughs) So I couldn't afford to keep buying everything that I wanted to buy. And I thought, well, I guess I could check things out of the library. Wait, I work in a library. But we only had three graphic novels in the library at that time in 2005. What were they? Oh, you know. You know one of them. What's in ev- – Mouse? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was another one Calvin and Hobbes or something? No. Oh. It was Mouse, Persepolis, and Palestine. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Well, okay. we had um, Edward Said was on faculty uh, at Columbia. Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. And so he – we only had Persepolis and Palestine because they were on his course reading list. But those are very, like, highbrow New York Times bestseller lists, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. You know, so – I guess so. How do you go about saying, okay, I want to, I want to build this collection? So I, I brought together stakeholders: the fine arts librarian, the American studies librarian, the graphic arts librarian, um, and then my boss, and then the person who controlled the money. And I brought in like a stack of things from my own collection because I wanted them to see the range of what comics really could be. So it's like I was holding up 
the death of Gwen Stacy, which, you know, looks like what everybody kind of thinks of who doesn't know comics, thinks of when they think of comics. And next to it, I held up Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz, Daredevil, Love and War, which doesn't look like anything sure. <laughs> you've ever seen before. And they're like, oh. <laughs> um, so I made three arguments. One was that comics, and this was in 2005, comics uh, were getting growing critical and academic acceptance. Mm. And I was able to show articles in peer-reviewed academic journals, not just about Mouse and Persepolis and Palestine, <laughs> but about you know Chris Ware and all sorts of people. And I pointed out that we have a film school and a film studies program and that the connection between film and comics was already strong in 2005 and that it would behoove students in those programs to be able to see this raw material. And uh, my third argument was more sentimental. What's Columbia's full name, Sana? Um, oh, my God. I, I love how this is just like this. a test yeah. on Sana. I, I feel like I'm being tested. Um <laughs> <laughs> Columbia University, I don't know. Columbia University in the city of New York. Oh, very well done. Thank you. Yeah. So so I pointed out that that was our title and that comics in America were born in New York and that nobody in New York, no academic institution was systematically collecting in this medium and that these two long-lived institutions might perhaps benefit each other. And damn if they didn't buy it. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> argument and so accurate. And yes, New York City, it's a, not only just the inception, but for us, it's like a character in the Marvel Universe, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually went up in a, in a helicopter with this French documentary team back in the fall. They were doing a, a little 15-minute documentary about Spider-Man. And they wanted me to talk about Spider-Man from a helicopter, looking down from a Spider-Man's <laughs> eye view. How fun was that? Wow. Or scary? It was awesome. It was an open door helicopter. <laughs> oh my, my god. god! So I got to like dangle my legs outside <laughs> over New York City. Oh my but god. you know, I was looking down and saying, you know, what's nice about comics in New York is that New York is essentially laid out in panels, mm -hmm. and and just like in the comics, all the real action happens in the gutters, you know, happens in the streets and on the sidewalks. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm a beautiful woman. You, you really are a beautiful woman. <laughs> I could hear you talk all day. Well, how big is the collection now? The collection now is about 14,000 titles in over two dozen languages. Wow. You know, we've known you for a couple of years. We've been talking to you about having you on the podcast. Look, we did it. We made it all work. But what I felt was so appropriate was to have you come in as part of our 80th anniversary specials that we're doing this year. We did. Um, we've done one with uh, Trina Robbins. But what we wanted sort of from you is because now that you've built this library and you've, you've learned so much about comics, like the history of comics, specifically the 1970s, because this is the moment in time where comics are changing mm. for superheroes. You know, obviously the 1960s, Jack and Stan are back and they're creating these characters. But the 1970s is where a lot of these iconic characters are either created or sort of brought back. You know, we think of Carol Danvers as Miss Marvel, mm -hmm. also Storm in 1975. Mm -hmm. But what we also want to talk about is that introspective of you growing up in this period of time with comics and how different the world is now. I think so <laughs> few pe people don't yeah. think about it. I mean, the bullpen still existed, which is like nowadays is like this thing that hopefully will one day be on a screen of a movie or a TV show people just working in one room creating comics now you you rarely ever meet your comic creator yeah well but the bull, the bullpen was sort of an idealized thing that i think stanley kind of made it into this like fictionalized narrative of everyone's coming in and making comics together and there was i think that a lot of the colorists and letters were on staff but the writers would come in and drop it off right. and, and but we still but i think like the out, spirit right? of that has has always been true yeah, yeah. And that's sort of kind of the the one downside of technology of you know being able to just send things over the internet you know you don't get that community that sense of community the same way it's a digital community now yeah. it's very different but you know what was it like you know you were probably into more of like sort of the, i mean obviously besides archie comics which by the way, me too. Love Archie Comics. <laughs> they were That's amazing. I got into it. Totally amazing. Oh my god! And the fashion. Yes. <laughs> and everyone looked great. Everyone looked beautiful. And it was certainly a very idealized version of high school. <laughs> yeah. Completely agree with you. Yeah. But then, but then I read about how you kind of got into that. You got more into sort of the underground, quote unquote, comic scene, right? Oh, totally. Because it was the seventies. You know, that was, and I was 
let's just say that in the 70s in high school, I was an enthusiastic explorer of the underground lifestyle. <laughs> Ooh, like, tell us more. I like how you talked about yeah. that. Are you here? <laughs> you were a hippie? <laughs> well, I was too late, really, to be a hippie by the time I was in high school. It was 72, and hippies were kind of, I mean, Summer I guess, Love yeah. it was five years earlier, right? So I'd kind of missed the train on that one, but I wished that I had been a hippie. I just yearned to have been a hippie. I have a brother who's 10 years older than I am, and he was, you know, he was involved in SDS at the University of Michigan. I'm like, oh, my God, you're so awesome. <laughs> he hitchhiked across the country. This was like my dream. My dream was to have a an apartment full of plants and sunlight and Joni Mitchell on the stereo. <laughs> a, a what? Indie comics. What? So what? what was it about that that you got into, and what was, I mean... What is indie comics all about? Well, underground comics in the 70s, at least at my high school, were kind of like Samizdat. It's like somebody would buy one and then it would get kind of passed around. And I don't think I ever bought any myself. I don't think I knew that comic shops existed. I think comics were still to a great extent on newsstands. So I don't know where people were getting these crumb comics that I was reading. But uh, there they were. And, you know, Guys Club. You know, it was totally a guys club and so totally unaware that it was a guys club because that was just that was just like the water that you swam in. That was just that was just the world. I was actually thinking about the 70s in preparation for this and thinking about. So in 1970, I turned 12 and in 1970, they started the hearings for the Equal Rights Amendment. And in 72 the pill got approved for single women, was legalized for single women. Originally, it's just been for married women. Title IX was introduced. ERA gets sent to the state legislatures. Gloria Steinem founds Ms. Magazine. Maud runs the episode where Maud gets pregnant and has an abortion in prime time mm-hmm. in a sitcom, 1972. And then 1973 is Roe v. Wade. Just like... I can't believe that I lived through all of that. And, of course, you also had the the backlash. You had, like, Phyllis Schlafly starting her Stop ERA movement. But just kind of being immersed in this world where you kind of took for granted that everything was run by and done by men and starting to see the effects of second-wave feminism, consciousness raising and fighting back in the workplace and taking charge of your own sexuality and reproductive rights. That was amazing. But it was also tricky because taking control of your sexuality in the 70s meant you were still going to get labeled like it was the 50s. Mm. So it could be very lonely out there in the forefront. (laughs) Well, how do you think that was reflected in pop culture, obviously in comics, but pop culture at large? Do you think it was accurately presented or do you think it was sort of a caricaturized version of reality? Oh, I definitely think it was a caricaturized version Mm -hmm. of reality, just like hippies had been caricaturized in the 60s in comics and in sitcoms and in movies and beatniks in the 50s. Anything that's kind of new and slightly different from the status quo immediately gets co-opted by mainstream culture and kind of turned into something a little ludicrous. So people focused on bra burning instead of, oh, gee, women might actually like to get paid the same as men. <laughs> or, or, you know, the notion that a less qualified man should get a promotion over a more qualified woman because he has a family. He needs to have the higher salary to provide for his family. Now it just seems so quaint, but that was just, that was just, we were swimming in it. <laughs> Uh, We were talking to Trina just about the transition from, like, Golden Age of Comics and into into the Silver Age. But, like, the idea that a lot of women were making comics back in the day because it was similar to any other jobs because men were at war and there were more jobs available. And so there were women making comics. And then there was comics for women because women were reading them. And then at some point, men came back. Then the jobs were given back to them. And I I didn't even think about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that really translated to comics as well because the same thing was happening. Men were getting the jobs again, and they were telling most of the stories, even though women 
were around. You know, Marie Severin was around and pretty prolific. Sure. You know, God bless her. She's uh, incredible. But it was still predominantly men. Absolutely. So I do find it interesting because at the same time, it seemed like there were a lot more female characters in particular created between like the 60s and the 70s compared to what existed before. I think if you're looking at superheroes, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. I think if you look outside that particular genre, you know, you've got the whole romance comics thing. So there's Betty and Veronica and people knew <sighs> Millie the model. and But, you know, a, a lot happened when the guys came back from the war. It wasn't just that they took the jobs back that the women had had. It's that they had been this huge captive audience as GIs mm-hmm. for comics and now they had to go and work, and maybe they weren't spending as much time reading comics, and that's when comics started to become, to a great extent, the purview of of kids, and that's what really leads to the whole scare of 1954 and the the introduction of the code, because grown-ups had been reading comics, so crime comics and horror comics and, you know, whatever, were, were just fine, and now they were still getting published, but the audience had changed so so radically. You know, when I started the collection, I was looking desperately for a faculty member who would endorse it, because that's how you really get things done at a university. You get faculty writing off on it. And somebody told me about this uh, history professor named, great name, like a great name for comics, Dick Bullet, uh, <laughs> and that he was this huge, huge comics fan. So I went and I talked to him. And what fascinated him about comics was that, yes, you had this whole genre specifically aimed at adolescent boys who were impressionable and would have their moral world shaped, and then they would grow up and become business leaders and politicians, and that would be their their moral landscape, what they had learned reading comics. And he found that notion so fascinating, as did I. And he wrote this wonderful letter supporting the, the creation of the comics collection as a result. And of course, then a few years later, Barack Obama gets elected and he happens to mention that he's a huge Conan and Spider-Man fan. And it's like, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's out there. <laughs> well, how do you think, why wasn't it then that, because there were a great amount of female characters that were emerging in the 70s sure. and 60s and 70s and are like our biggest female characters, like Invisible Woman was there, Black Widow, Wasp, Storm, like they all exist, Jean Grey, like they all were at, now sure. on the scene. So why do you think it was that it didn't maybe necessarily bring in more women because they existed? Sure, sure, sure. Um, and I'm curious as to how, how they were perceived and, and why they didn't necessarily resonate with the female audience. Well, you know, there were the three titles. So apart from the, the characters that you just mentioned who were part of kind of big name titles that were already established, there were three titles that were introduced specifically for women in 1972. Night Nurse, Shanna the She-Devil, and something called Beware the Claws of the Cat with a character named Tigra. Mm-hmm. And Jean Thomas, Roy Thomas's wife, was writing Night Nurse, and she said in an interview that that Night Nurse wasn't didn't have enough superhero content for boys and didn't have roman- enough romantic interest for girls. So, you know, 1972 is still kind of the beginning of how everything's changing, and the people who are embracing the women's movement are like women in their 20s and 30s, and you're still looking at adolescent girls. They haven't quite caught up to what's happening in the wind. So maybe they were still really interested in teen romance. I mean, God, I remember being a kid and Mystery Date was like a big board game that Mm -hmm. people played. And now that's just so horrifying to me. (laughs) So Night Nurse, you know, it was about a bunch of nurses. You know, that's not necessarily a compelling, sorry, nurses, that's not necessarily a compelling storyline for people who are looking for superhero action. Mm. Um, Shanna the She-Devil sounds a lot like Sheena, looked a lot like Sheena. She had big cats. I don't think, and this is not to knock the people who worked on it, but they weren't they weren't being written by the people who were making hits of the the characters that you just named. One of the things that's so interesting is that Jean Thomas, Roy's wife, was writing Night Nurse. 
Carol Suling, Phil Suling's wife, was writing Shanna the She-Devil, and then she returns in a story written by Jerry Conway's wife. So you, you had like all these wives of people in comics kind of stepping in. So Ms. Marvel debuts in 77, written by Jerry Conway, the first two issues, and then Chris Claremont takes over. He brought a whole different yeah. sensibility to yeah. writing women. You know, yeah. there was the whole thing where he, um, somebody wrote a story where this guy basically kind of mind wipes her and seduces her and impregnates mm-hmm. her and she gives birth to himself. To himself yep. And the Avengers are all like, this Body is down. great. Yeah. We're so happy for you. Even though they hadn't really even noticed that she hadn't even been pregnant like a couple weeks earlier. And Chris found this so horrific. Rightly so. So that was a story called The Child is Father to the dot, 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 question mark. And then he wrote a story called By Friends Betrayed in which she basically figures out what's going on and gives uh, the Avengers holy hell. There's this great panel where she just smacks (laughs) Thor across the face because he's commiserating with her for losing her beloved. And she's like, I tried to tell you that, you know, something had gone wrong here and you did not have my back and you didn't believe me. It's like, (laughs) yeah. So this is why I will always love Chris Claremont. (laughs) So many reasons, but for that alone. I mean, do you have any thoughts and opinions on like female power sets versus their male counterparts? Well, you know, let's just go back to Chris for a moment and Storm. You know, this amazing African-American woman first African-American woman to lead a group of superheroes. He gives her unbelievable power. He develops this whole backstory for her because he took her over like almost immediately from Len Wein, right? Because Len creates her and like three issues later, Chris is writing her. And so everything that Storm is, he's, he's given her that. And she is so powerful and she is, is such an unusual character for that time. And popular you know you write a good character people are going to be interested in that character regardless of whether it challenges social norms of the time this conversation has been so amazing where can fans find you well um there's the facebook page comics at columbia which is probably the easiest place to find me um but you can also reach me via email at klg19 at columbia.edu So here's a fun fact about Columbia Libraries. The circulating collection, which of course is mass market materials, is not open to the general public. But Rare Books, which has unique materials, is because of course it's unique and you can't restrict completely unique materials to researchers only at your own institution. So anyone can create a research account online, come in, give us a piece of photo ID, get their photo taken, and request materials from our archives. And we will bring them to you in a nice supervised reading room. What's the coolest thing you have in your archives? Oh, okay. The coolest thing we have in our archives is a comic strip that was done by undergraduates making fun of a professor whom they hated in 1766. What? Wait, from Columbia or from? From King's College. We weren't Columbia yet. It was before the Revolution. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And it's scurrilous. And there's also all this anti-Irish iconography all through it as well. And it's like 100 years before the Irish potato famine and like all of the no Irish need apply stuff. So really fascinating, fascinating piece. And it uses speech balloons in 1766 really poorly, but it uses them. It's like sometimes they run out of space and so the speech balloon kind of goes backwards and then they actually write like upside down because they haven't kind of figured out that they could just (laughs) write in the other direction it's great so that's my favorite thing in our collection i'm totally gonna check it out with my (laughs) alumni card there you go i'm going to come and And then i'm gonna go uh, apply online (laughs) (laughs) well karen thank you for just this wealth of knowledge and this conversation it was so fantastic honestly and also, thank you for building this collection at Columbia University and legitimizing comics <laughs> for the <laughs> academics. I really well, think that's it's quite a feat. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a great pleasure. 
Thanks again to Karen for joining us. Uh, hopefully we have both ladies come back to the podcast soon to talk more about history and comics as we continue to celebrate the 80th anniversary of Marvel. And speaking of anniversaries, uh, we have Lorraine Sink joining us again this month to talk all about iconic characters from the 1970s. Lorraine Sink, do you mean the Lorraine Sink? Oh my God, Lorraine Sink. She is, we're so excited to have her back on the podcast. This is where we're supposed to say really nice and amazing things about Lorraine. But we like her and her dog. I know, but let's just be like, oh, we're saying really nice and amazing things about Lorraine. Enter all of the adjectives. Well, go listen to her talk about the 1970s. (laughs) What an intro. Thank you, ladies. Today, I'm going to talk about three ladies that are very important to the 1970s of Marvel Comics. And I'm talking Valkyrie, Storm, and Miss Marvel, a.k.a. Carol Danvers. I'm also going to be talking a little bit about the real-world history that painted a picture of the 1970s so that you can kind of understand how these characters evolved and why. So in the 1960s, a lot happened. A lot of pen was being put to paper, and a lot of things that people have been fighting for for decades were finally getting recognized by the government in the United States. The fight for equal pay had been taken to the White House. The Supreme Court established that married couples actually had a right to use contraception, which means a woman could take greater control over her body and her life. And President Lyndon B. Johnson also signed an executive order prohibiting sexual discrimination by government contractors and requiring affirmative action plans for hiring women. That's big. All of that stuff is really, really big. Women are being considered to be equal employees with equal pay who have the right to control their bodies. And that's where we get to the 1970s. So let's kick it off with 1970 when Valkyrie was first brought to Marvel Comics. It is in Avengers number 83 in 1970, written by Roy Thomas, with art by John Buscema, and she is leading a team called the Lady Liberators. Okay, the Lady Liberators, are you with me right now? This is clearly a comment on the women's liberation movement. It's not subtle. And Valkyrie has basically brought in all of the women of the Avengers. She's got Black Widow and Scarlet Witch and the Wasp and Medusa, all the gingers basically, and has turned them against their male counterparts in the Avengers. They take on the masters of evil and that allows wah, 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 big reveal, the Enchantress who has been pulling the strings of Valkyrie the whole time to show up and best the male Avengers. Of course, they get rid of the Enchantress, Avengers save the day, And Valkyrie remains a comment on the women's liberation movement through mm, the early 70s, really. She comes into her own in her own way, but I love that she is this brash character who is like, I'm a god, I will kick all of the butts, I will take all of the names, and I'm not afraid. And I think that's the thing that's just really, really fun about her. And bonus, she rides a Pegasus. Okay, we're moving through time a little bit. We're going to go from 1970 to 1975. And during that time, there were some really iconic moments in women's history. We have Roe versus Wade being passed. The Supreme Court made a ruling banning sex segregation for help wanted advertising. So you couldn't just say, hey, I want a man to come do this job. You had to allow anyone to do that job. The Supreme Court made it illegal to force pregnant women to take maternity leave on the assumption that they were incapable of working. And the Supreme Court denied that states had the right to exclude women from juries. Can you imagine a world where you couldn't be on a jury? That blows my mind. But an incredible character is also ushered in in the middle of the 1970s. I know she means a lot to many women, including me, Storm. She was introduced in Giant Size X-Men, number one in 1975, written by Lynn Wein, with art by Dave Cockrum. And, you know, I love Storm, I think in some ways because she wasn't actually a comment on the women's liberation movement. She just happened to be a really kick-ass, powerful lady that was created in comics. So the way that she came about was that Professor X needed to recruit a whole bunch of new X-Men because essentially the X-Men had gone missing. 
missing. X-Men like to do that from time to time. They just kind of disappear. But we got a whole really cool new team and a really international team. So like think of these kids as sort of like the X-Men exchange students. Like, for instance, he went to Germany and found Nightcrawler. He went to Canada and got Wolverine. He went to Russia and collected Colossus. He went to Arizona, not another country, but he still got Thunderbird there. And then he went to Kenya and he found a goddess. Or at least she was being worshipped as a goddess, as she should be, because she is. So he recruits Storm to come and be part of the X-Men. And within just a few years, she becomes the next major leader of the X-Men. And she does some things that I think are really cool that not a lot of people get to do. Besides being sort of a confidant to people like Charles Xavier, she just gets to fly the flippin' plane. And she is briefly the queen of Wakanda, which is just freaking cool. I think Storm is really important to a lot of people. You know, of course, some of it is that she is an incredibly powerful woman. Some of it is that she is an immigrant. Some of it is that she is a person of color. But I think the thing that I find very impressive about her is that she has a weight to her character and a great deal of power and ferocity. And also, she has been visually represented very, very well, I think, in a lot of ways. Sure, she's had some sexy, sexy costumes in her past, but... She's also had her amazing mohawk phase, and they haven't shied away from letting her be different and have her own identity, and I think that's something that really draws me to her as a character. All right, let's hop in our time machine one more time and head forward a little bit in history. We're going to talk a little bit about the late 70s, but first, shout out to some history from the real life early 70s. In 1972, the government printing office made it acceptable for Ms. being M.S. Dot to be an optional title for women instead of Mrs. or Miss M.I.S.S., which was a big deal for women because it meant that you could be known without having your marital status be at the front of your identity. And this probably took place in part because there was this incredible foundation created called the Ms. Foundation by Gloria Steinem, who was a pioneer in rights for women. So Ms. was a title about town in the 1970s, and that is reflected in this next title, Ms. Marvel, number one, written in 1977 by Jerry Conway with art by John Buscema, and it's colored by Marie Severin. You might know Ms. Marvel by a different name, which is Carol Danvers. She was actually created in 1968, but she came back as a superhero called Ms. Marvel in the 1970s. So I really wanted to save her for this kick in time era. So when we meet Carol Danvers, she has been ousted from NASA security. She failed to capture Captain Marvel, which was her job, and she got caught in this big explosion. Well, it turns out this big explosion that she was caught up in actually gave her superpowers, but she doesn't know what the heck is going on. It turns out in the interim before she came into Ms. Marvel number one, she had written sort of a tell-all about NASA, which I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to do, but she did it. And that book allowed her to become the editor for Woman Magazine, which is owned by, dun-dun-dun, love it, J. Jonah Jameson. You know him as the guy who hates Spider-Man. No, thanks, Spider-Man. That's how I think his voice sounds, I think. Don't at me. So J. Jonah Jameson hires her, and there is this great first page where they're talking and they're negotiating her salary and he's like, I'm not going to let you do any of these stories about women politics. And I'm not going to allow any of this. I want recipes. I want fashion. And she's like, nope, nope, nope. And I'll be taking this much money. And it's just such a wonderful introduction to her as a character because it shows that even when you put her up against the loudest blowhard in the Marvel Universe, she still just kind of owns. But she finally, after a few issues comes to terms that she is a woman from Earth, she has Cree powers, and she is claiming both of her identities, both as Carol Danvers and as a superhero who can kick butts, take names, and save the planet. And look at how far we've come also in this moment from where we look at Valkyrie with the Lady Liberators going, we're women and we're going to fight the good fight, just kidding, we hate dudes, to 
saying, I'm a woman, I am powerful, I own who I am, I own my identity, and I step up into that responsibility. And to see that change in writing in seven years, essentially, is really cool. I hope you enjoyed that look back at the 1970s in the Marvel Universe. If you want to read these comics, I really highly recommend them. They're really fun reads. You can start with Ms. Marvel number one, or you can check out Giant Size X-Men number one if you want to check out more Storm and then follow her into her run in Uncanny X-Men. Or I would say with Valkyrie, you probably want to start around Defenders number four in 1974. And of course, if you like stories about ladies, you can always check out my book, Marvel, Powers of a Girl, all about Marvel's female superheroes, using their stories to empower and inspire. Or you can just keep listening to this beautiful podcast, The Women of Marvel. Thanks for having me, ladies. Lorraine Sink, thank you so much for your wise words <laughs> and all your education and research. It actually has been super helpful because for me, it's actually very informative. So I do mean this genuinely and I do love you, Lorraine. Okay, what do we got next? Oh, guess what I'm going to talk about? Marvel Rising. Yay! <laughs> well, actually, um, exciting news in Marvel Rising Very world. exciting news. We just had WonderCon um, and they showed a little bit of Heart of Iron, which, by the way, Heart of Iron special just came out last week. Go check it out on Marvel HQ, our YouTube channel. Share it with your family, your friends, all the little ones in your life. And um, I just got a, a review from my niece, who absolutely loved it. And she's like, when are the next specials coming? I can't wait. This is so amazing. She loves, like, Inferno and Kamala and, like, all those characters. So, great news. We have three more specials that we announced featuring a return to Ghost Spider, a.k.a. Gwen Stacy, and her band, the MJs. It's going to be a really fun adventure featuring a story called The Battle of the Bands. And then we have Shuri coming into the Marvel Rising world, and she's going to be doing some fun team-ups with the Secret Warriors. It's a really, really great, great story. And um, and then a really fun special with Inferno, who is Dante Pertuz, and who's sort of the love interest for Ms. Marvel. Like a very awkward love interest for Ms. Marvel. And there's another side story there with America Chavez. So a lot of great stuff coming from uh, Marvel Rising, and just definitely stay tuned for more information so please support it and remember a lot of the toys are in target as we speak so go check it out and you can find a lot of that stuff online as well but do support it because then we can do more and that's the goal it's also a busy year in general there's stuff there will be tons of news from us coming out and make sure you guys go get your tickets for marvel studios avengers endgame and and we have games and we have comics and we have everything and we'll probably have comic-con news soon (laughs) We'll be back uh, in two weeks, okay, guys? This is Marvel. Your universe. 